I'm Ashley. And I'm Alicia. And we are Murd Nerds. Hello, Murd Nerds. If you are a returning listener, thank you and welcome back. If you are a new listener, we are glad to have your ears here with us to receive the serenade that is our voices. <laughs> yeah, you like that? That was beautiful. Bad news, though. We will not be singing beautiful songs for you. No, no. Oh. We prefer to tell the darker, harder-to-digest stories of Indiana's missing persons, unsolved cases, and anything off the beaten path that we feel like telling you about. Or that you maybe request to hear. Not that we won't throw in some lighthearted stories to give us all a bit of a break. The journey has been so fun and eye-opening for Alicia and I. We love researching and sharing these stories with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Now, before I get started, I wanted to talk about a developing case out of Kokomo, Indiana. Oh. Yes. Uh, I'm sure you remember the Karina McClurkin case. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, this is in the same city, obviously. And uh, it's kind of similar situation. It's a young girl. She goes missing. But in this story, they actually found her body. Oh. So um, I'm going to just read this verbatim from an article on WTHR.com, which I'm assuming is like a local Kokomo um, news station. The Kokomo Police Department is investigating after a body was found near a trail Monday afternoon. Around 4.15 on March 15th, Kokomo Police Department officers were sent to a bike trail in the 3000 block of North Washington Street on a report of a body being discovered. Responding officers found a teenager's body in the brush (gasps) near a bike trail. Investigators from the Kokomo Police Department and representatives from the Howard County Coroner's Office arrived to investigate. The body was identified as 17-year-old Mia L. Rails. She was reported as a runaway to the Kokomo Police Department on February 8th. She That was of this year. Yeah. She had last been seen on February 6th. An autopsy Tuesday found no evidence of trauma. Uh, the cause of death is pending the results of a toxicology report. The case remains under investigation, so anyone with any information is asked to contact Detective Eric Fogg at 675 675- Four five six seven three six nine, or the Kokomo Police Department hotline at seven six five four five six seven zero one seven, and then obviously, as always, you can call Crime Stoppers at one eight hundred two six two TIPS tips. Wow, yeah, that's a sad story. Yeah. I mean, Karina McClurkin was just barely eighteen, but still, still feels worse. Yeah, for it to be a seventeen-year-old. What is up with Kokomo? I think. I think they have a really bad drug problem over there. Not saying that this is drug related. I just, I just think that it heightens the crime. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like bad drugs. I hope they find some kind of yeah something ending to that. My case this week is a big one, and about as local as you can get to us, aside from just being in our hometown. Bear with me. There was endless information and sources. And I found a wonderfully done podcast that dedicated an entire season to just telling this particular story. So, you know me, I wanted to say everything that I read, so I really had to shave this down, like, a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really hard. (laughs) It was very hard. 
Not to mention, I changed my case three times in two weeks. <laughs> Not you. Yeah, it's been a roller coaster. It was like, first I wanted to do like a survivor sh- survival story, and then I changed to something like kind of older, funnier, that would be like a little more lighthearted and funner to kind of joke around about. And then I was like, you know what? I want to tackle the Lakeville prom night murders. <gasps> I knew it. I knew what she said. <laughs> Jeremy and yeah. I were looking at each other and I was I like. I know. Uh, when I was like, as local as you can be without being here, I was like, they know already. <laughs> well, when you said the, uh, there was a podcast that gave a whole season to it. You've listened to that? Oh, I've listened to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there is a trigger warning. There's child murder involved in this case. Um, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail on anything involving the murder of the children except for just the few words it takes to say the cause of their death. So um, if you don't want to listen, go ahead and we'll see you next week. No big deal. We won't be mad at you. I promise. Pinky promise. My sources this week, um, Alicia and I utilize, we have um, a subscription to the newspaper archives. It's actually newspaperarchive.com. There's no S. I do that all the time. (laughs) It like reroutes you to like a genealogy website. And I'm like, you're a phony. I didn't type this. (laughs) (sighs) That guy's a phony. (laughs) So anyway, um, off the newspaper archive, I pulled um, articles from the Logansport Pharaohs Tribune Anderson Herald Bulletin and the Rushville Republican and I used multiple articles from each of these um what are they called sources well yeah newspapers, papers, newspapers yeah, yeah that's the word those are the words um I also used the South Bend Tribune abc57.com cbs news and a 48 hours documentary hey yep dailymail.co.uk which is just daily mail but I felt like I had to say the whole thing right yeah and then um my last source was the Counterclock podcast. So season three, uh, Delia, she, have you ever listened to it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So yeah, she does a deep dive into this oh, yeah. case. I mean, it is insane. There's so much information. And then last but not least, uh, specifically in the South Bend Tribune, I used an article by Marek Mazurik. I believe is how you pronounce his name. The Pellies were your quintessential blended family. All of the kids were from previous marriages. Jeff was 17 and Jackie was 14. They were Roberts from a previous marriage. Jessica was 10, Janelle was 8, and Jolene was 6, and they were Dons from a previous marriage. After both losing their spouses about five years prior, Don and Robert came together to create their new large family. Robert, being a reverend, gave the family the opportunity to live in the church's parsonage, which is just like an on-site house. Sometimes I think it's connected to the church, but I I don't believe... In their case, I think it was... Behind the church. Yeah, Yeah. like a separate house. Don Pelly was described as quiet but quick-witted with a great sense of humor. Robert was a charismatic leader in his church. He was actually the lead pastor... The papers described one of his openings to a sermon that I thought was, like, really fun and clever. So, basically, he took off his, like, suit jacket, mm-hmm. and he just wore, like, his undershirt. And as the sermon was due to start, he was just sitting in the front row, like, reading a newspaper. And they had a pretty big—I think their congregation was, like, 80 people or something like that. People started to, like, whisper, like, what's going on? Where Where's the pastor at? Yeah. So, at that point, Don got up politely tapped him on the shoulder and told him that it was time to begin. 
Obviously, it was all staged, and he began the sermon stating the whole point of all this fun um, was just to let them know that they need to come to church prepared. And I was like, that's like a really cool way just to keep people on their toes and keep things fun. Yeah, or be aware of your surroundings. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) because no one knew he was even sitting there. Yeah, exactly. And it's only because they probably see him in a suit all the time, and he's just wearing like a regular shirt. He's just a normal guy, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, I thought that was really cool and engaging. And so I think he was really well-liked. Definitely. The last Saturday in April 1989 was a relatively normal day for the Pelly family. Robert, Don, Janelle, and Jolene were in for the day. Jeff was getting ready for prom, which was being held that evening. Jessica was staying at a friend's house for the night, and Jackie was at church camp. Once Jeff left for prom, it was just Don, Robert, and the two younger girls at home. At 9 a.m. Sunday morning on April 30th, church was due to begin. Their church, the Olive Branch Church of the Brethren in Christ. What a name. I know, right? What a name. It's a long one. So, like I said earlier, they had a pretty large congregation, especially for, like, Lakeville area. Yeah, it's small. It's pretty rural. Rural. That's mm-hmm. rural. So, so Super rural. Yeah. So, worry set in pretty early. Because the entire Pelly family was absent. Yeah. Weird. The reverend and then his whole family. Well, and he already was playing tricks, you know? So Ooh, yeah. He did that thing where he never arrived. So maybe they thought that was Yeah, so part well of it. no, no. They they were they were worried pretty quick. Um <laughs> ah. but yeah, maybe at first like what team planning now. What kind of shenanigans is Pastor Bob doing now? <laughs> David Hathaway, a 27-year-old church trustee, and two other church members decided to go to the Pelly's home to see what was going on. The church, uh, the other members decided to just get started in the meantime, singing and praising. David entered the parsonage around 10 a.m. and walked into an obviously gruesome scene and immediately contacted police. Robert was discovered in the hallway just outside of the couple's bedroom, while Don, Janelle, and Jolene were all found in the family room, which was actually located in the basement of the home. So, something I thought about was really eerie. Like, just think about walking into this home and, and finding this. There's a church, what, 50 feet from you? They're all yeah. singing hymns. Oh, you God. know you could hear. How eerie does that? That is really eerie. That's an eerie thought. I was, like, getting really creeped out when I was writing this paragraph, thinking about it. So, um, another creepy detail. So morbid. But the church eventually had to get a new pastor. And you know he had to live in that house. Oh, I didn't even think about that. They they renovated it, obviously. You know, they you tore... You can't renovate a death out of it, though. Moida. Yeah. Moida. But still, I was like, ooh. Some people, that doesn't bother them, though. Yeah, I don't think it would bother me if, like, a death happened in a home and I knew about it. None of that. But if a gruesome murder took place and six months later I'm living in that house doing Doing the same exact thing that that family did every single week, that would creep me out. Yeah, no, thank you. Woof. Stronger man than I am. And I'm a pretty strong man. (laughs) (laughs) After assessing the scene, police believed the murders happened sometime Saturday afternoon. They stated that the door was locked and that there were no signs of forced entry. I'm guessing they're taking the church trustee's word for it. He was trusted with a key, which would make me a bit uncomfortable, but I guess that's how, like, church hierarchies work. They just give keys of the, the to trust- the parsonage out. 
I believe that the key was actually the the second key, the spare key was actually in the church. Mm-hmm. I think um, from he my just understanding, knew where it was. from my understanding, he went over the doors were locked. And he went back and got the key. Mm, because I obviously believe so. He, they were home. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All four victims appeared to have been shot at close range with a shotgun. No weapon or spent shells had been found in the home. So that immediate, immediately ruled out the like murder-suicide scenario. Mm-hmm. Someone had obviously cleaned up after themselves. And police believe that Robert was, Robert was killed first and then the rest of the Ugh. family after. The police did a video walkthrough of the home, describing the scene as they went through. Some of the evidence collected from the home, mentioned in one of the counterclock episodes from season three, included Robert's glasses, a disposable camera, a 35-millimeter camera, a piece of wood from the stairs leading to the basement, cutouts of the carpet and walls from upstairs and downstairs, a 16-gauge shotgun shell that was unfired and it was found like in Bob's shit, like it wasn't... Oh, like, like, like laying stuff. on the ground or anything. Yeah. yeah. That matched the gun. <clears throat> that matched the, well, matched the. I don't think it was significant enough. I haven't read anything about it matching. The shots that, that it fired. matched. Yeah, no. They also took some furniture with bullet fragments, some damp washcloths they found in the bathroom. And lastly, they found some keys and a locket in a trash barrel outside. So the locket contained a photo of a white male and a white female. Mm-hmm. That they don't know who they are. No. So their son, Jeff, was seemingly MIA to the officers, but he'd actually been out all night after prom, um, you know, just doing after prom activities, going to amusement park in Chicago the next day. So it's pretty typical tra- prom tradition. Mm-hmm. Police did not have that information like right away, though. They had to talk to people to find that out. They learned in early interviews that Jeff was actually grounded before his prom and was forbidden to go to like the pre-prom dinner, the after party, and the amusement park. He was only supposed to be able to attend the dance, and Robert was to drive him there and back. And this is actually confirmed by the neighbors because Jeff had asked them to use their Trans Am, which they told him that was fine. But that was until Robert went over there and told them like he was not allowed to use it. Mm-hmm. He told the neighbor's family that or he told the neighbors that it was family, whether it be, you know, Jeff's family or his girlfriend, Darla's family. That's who was going to be driving him like to and from prom. And he also went as far to say that he took took a part from Jeff's car so he could not drive that either. The neighbors also noticed that the basement light was on all night and that Jeff's Mustang was gone the next day in the morning. They uh, she obviously found that odd because she had that conversation with Robert Mm -hmm. the day before. Another thing that was off that Sunday morning was that Major, the family dog, was outside and the neighbors weren't sure if Major was out all night Saturday night. So they basically said that he had a kennel outside and it was too dark. They couldn't really tell. Mm -hmm. But they noticed that morning that he was out there. Did you um did you find why Jeff was grounded? Why was uh, why yeah. was he grounded? Is that something you'll get into later? Um I kind of So basically he got busted. He like broke into a house and stole some money and I don't know some other petty shit. Right on. And I think he used it like to tr- like go on a vacation or something. So it had to be like kind of a substan- substantial amount of money. There, I don't think that any. They never filed any charges or anything like gotcha. that. He just got in trouble and like got a, a stern talking to with the mm. cops and all that. The officers did not search the neighbors' 
um, like property aside from the tree line on the outer edge. The neighbor told Delia from Counterclock that police told him they had nothing to worry about. Like there was no reason to be scared. That was within 24 hours of the murders. So clearly they had someone in mind. Yeah. Once the police found out Jeff's whereabouts, Detective John Bowditch and another officer drove the two hours to the amusement park to question Jeff as soon as possible. He was the last person, aside from the murderer, to see his family alive. So Jeff and his girlfriend, Darla, and then also the group that they were with, were rounded up by the police in Gurney, Illinois. The police were under strict orders to keep Jeff and Darla separate from the rest of the group and not be questioned until Bowditch and the other the other officer arrived. They also told them to impound both of their cars. Obviously, they wanted to search them. Mm-hmm. The Gurney police were cleared to tell Jeff about his parents' murder, but not his sisters quite yet, as they had not been positively identified. Delia says that on the car ride from the amusement park, she said that he was... He, he was clearly upset and Darla was trying to like comfort him. And then um, the police had to take them from the amusement park to the actual police station in Gurney, Illinois. So on the car ride from the amusement park to the police station, Jeff was still upset and asking like what happened to his parents? How were they killed? But the officers like they weren't allowed to tell him any other information. Mm-hmm. I read in all the old newspapers that St. Joseph County Sheriff Corporal long name, Charles Farrell would not say whether Jeff was a suspect, which I understand that, but he would, he also wouldn't even comment on whether Jeff had any legal counsel present at the time of his official questioning, which I don't know. I thought there was, he was just being kind of weird. Like he was a minor at the time and I was kind of wondering like who was in Jeff's corner. Mm-hmm. He's a kid, you know, and both of his biological parents and his stepmom are all gone. Yeah. Well, apparently, when he was in the Gurney, Illinois police station, Jeff had asked to call his maternal grandparents, but was told he could not. I guess him and Darla had to sit there at the station until about 9 p.m. before they were interviewed. This was because Bowditch and the other officer were questioning the other teens and searching Jeff and Darla's cars, which actually gave them nothing to go on. So they spoke with the two teens for about two hours, no adults present. Yeah, which is legal. Yeah. And then um, after those two hours, they begin the journey back to Indiana. So, yeah, these two 17-year-olds, no clue what their rights are, were held by police until after 2 a.m. Monday morning when they arrived back to Indiana. And Darla was released not too long after that, but they were just getting started with well, and Jeff. Where's Where are her parents? And all this. Well, she she is a big part of the story, but her parent it did mention her parents. I just didn't feel it important. Oh. There's just so much information. Like, why do I need to talk oh, about yeah, Darla's parents? You well, know, if they're letting her call her, her parents, why aren't they allowing? Well, they Jeff to. Well, that's well, a, that's on. simple. That's simply answered. They're they're trying to corner him. Yeah, they were. Yeah. They were trying to spook him and get a feel for yeah. him, and which and have him just kind of like word vomit instead yes. of like yeah. having a comforting <clears throat> person there, yeah. or attorney or anything. Yeah, and you did you pulled an Ashley because now that he was back in Indiana, his grandparents were called, <laughs> <laughs> and they gave um they gave police permission to interview him. You know, they wanted to find out what happened too. Yeah, and it's their mom, their daughter, you know, his mom. Well. No, it's his maternal grandparents. Maternal? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's his mom's. His mom was parents. dead. It was his stepmom that got murdered. His mom was already dead. She died of cancer like years before. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because remember, it's a. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. In the recording of the interview, Jeff seems like eerily calm and collected when he's telling his story. His time seemed to line up throughout the day, and he says that his friends for prom photos begin to show up that afternoon. Robert loved photography and had a nice 35 millimeter camera to take photos on, which I had mentioned before. Mm -hmm. It was one of the things they took. Jeff said that he left shortly after one of his friends around quarter to five as to go to another friend's house to get ready before their dinner reservations. Where did he say? The Emporium. That's where the reservations were. I was like, oh, that's weird. I still have never been there either. Bowditch asked Jeff why he was able to drive his car when he was supposedly grounded. Jeff had said simply that his dad had changed his mind. His sister Jessica commented saying that Robert was a negotiator style of parent. He would tend to overreact initially, but always said that when everyone calms down and a child thinks that their punishment is unfair, they were allowed to come to him and plead their case, and he would hear them out and Mm -hmm. adjust it accordingly if he agreed. Wait, so was his punishment for the robbery? He was grounded. He was grounded, and that's why he got his car taken away. He didn't necessarily get his car taken away. He was just not allowed to drive himself to prom and go to all these prom activities. He was only allowed to go to the dance. I think that's a pretty fair I've got to agree. I've got to agree with you on that. I mean, if he like, well, didn't actually, take the trash out. that Right. It's actually not fair because he probably should have gotten a little harsh punishment. But, I mean, we don't know. You know, he got a stern talking to with the cops and... He had been, he'd had a really good behavior, which is why he said that his dad changed his mind. Yeah. Well, and so, it happens. Yeah. To be fair, he actually, I had to, you had to remind me. I couldn't remember. That's why I asked why, mm-hmm. what he got grounded for. Um, but then you told me I remembered. He had stole a bunch of CDs and shit from CDs. That was That's the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I'm glad you asked because I actually didn't, yeah. I do mention it later, but I don't say like, you know, he got caught, started talking to. I just bring it up because the police do use it as like, okay, he has a criminal history, mm-hmm. basically. You know, not on paper, but they knew him. It's Lakeville. Does Lakeville even have a police station? It's probably just the county, right? St. Joe? I would assume St. Joe. Yeah. I, I so, think a lot of this was the South Bend Police Department, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. I really? Think so. I think so, yeah. You would think it would or have to be St. Joe. Joe. Yeah, St. Yeah, Joe County. Was. I was like, why would it yeah. be South Bend? That's city Sorry. police. It's That's a fine. Of, a lot of. You know what? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Bowditch is the cop that talked to him after he got busted stealing that money. It could be. So he was biased. He, yeah, yeah, he already yeah. had a bias. And you know what? Maybe um, Jeff was a little cocky when he was talking. You know, I, well, my dad's a pastor, and I'm not getting any. Well, you, for starters, you know about PK kids, preachers kids. You know, you they're know that bad. they're always a little. No, I know about TK kids. Those trailer park kids. Oh. <laughs> But from my, I've seen Footloose. From my understanding, he actually made amends with the guy that he had stolen stuff from. Yeah, it and, was actually yeah. his friend's house, yeah. I read. And yeah. he was paying him back or something, mm-hmm. from my understanding. Yeah, so, yeah, he was he was making amends and yeah. paying his dues, per se, without, like, going to juvie right. or even being tried right. as an adult because he was it's 17. A, it's a stupid kid mistake. Exactly. You know, he, yeah. The log in the St. Joe County official report 
showed 25 people coming in and out of the Pelly home that Sunday. Not just people, obviously. It was the church members that found the family, EMTs, police, the coroner, and a pathologist named Dr. Hoover. Now, having a pathologist on site is not standard procedure, So, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Okay. I'm ready. Police publicly let on very early that they had a suspect, but they did not release who or what the who it was or what the motivation behind the slayings were. We all know who they're referring to, but they didn't come out and say that they had a suspect. Reporters just strongly felt that they were hinting at it. Farrell had stated, we have information and we have evidence and we hope this will lead to a suspect. At this time, we are not releasing any information or names of a suspect or suspects. He also said, indications are that robbery and burglary are not the motive of these homicides. We have some ideas of motive, but we are not going to discuss this yet. Well, and when they're not, like, there's a manhunt. It's obviously an isolated incident. Like, they're like, okay, it wasn't burglary. It wasn't, obviously wasn't. Well, I don't know how early this was released. I guess I should have looked that up. But it wasn't like a sexual crime. It was mm-hmm. like freaking annihilation. Yeah, family annihilator kind of thing. Yeah, but That's what not they're insinuating. Because, well, yeah, I guess kind of. It's just usually the father that does mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I, I wonder if that would be called the same thing. I would think so. I would think so, too. I never thought about that. In Jeff's initial interview, he was asked about his parents' shotgun. The man who sold Robert this gun had called police after he learned of the murders to inform them that, hey, like, I sold him this gun. It could very well be the murder weapon. Jeff stated that his father had removed the gun from their home that prior year and that he had not seen it in a very long time. But when Jessica, his sister, was asked about the gun, she remembers seeing it that Friday before she left home. So that just depends on who you ask. Yeah, that's... A little fucky. The pathologist that was on scene, Dr. Hoover, was the pathologist that performed the autopsies on May 1st of 1989. This is going to get kind of icky, but it's not very long at all, I promise. He assessed the gunshot wounds on Robert and came to the conclusion that deer slugs were used. Robert was shot twice, once in the chest, and they determined that the chest shot was first. And that he could have likely been alive after that shot. I know. And then he was shot in the face. Oh, my God. Yes. Dawn's autopsy showed that she actually put her hand up before she was shot as she was missing some fingers on one of her hands. And also in the face. I'm not going to go into any detail about the girls. I don't think it's necessary to the story at this time. And it was hard enough just to freaking read and hear about. Mm -hmm. So I just don't see it necessary. Four weeks into the investigation, there didn't appear to be much progress publicly. The police claimed they still had a few leads, but offered up a $1,000 reward for any tips leading to an arrest. They had sent physical evidence to the FBI crime labs to be analyzed, and they were still awaiting those results. Since Dr. Hoover's autopsy results confirmed the police's suspicion, suspicions and stated the four members of the family were indeed shot at close range with a shotgun sometime that Saturday afternoon, divers were searching nearby ponds for that specific gun, along with deputies on horseback searching the woods. 
but they were also behind the scenes building this case against mm-hmm. Jeff, this circumstantial case. Fast forward a year, and the police report that really little has changed. There's been no movement in the case, so they were also clearly no closer to an arrest. Where's Jeff? Just living life? <laughs> One more sentence. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Well, because those are those questions that arise, and then so when we're researching, we follow it with those answers, because yeah. that's exactly what we're thinking when yeah. we're writing. No, you're fine. Um, the results from the FBI's analysis of forensic evidence were inconclusive and yielded no helpful clues. The two surviving girls were living out of state with family while Jeff had attended, but later dropped out of college. Okay. It appears the cops had zoned in on Jeff very early and began to build, like we said, that circumstantial case against him. I think they were, when they were hinting to a suspect, they were talking about him. Since after they questioned him, they would not reveal if he was a suspect or not. It's like, obviously, they if he wasn't, they'd be like, he's not. Yeah, he's clear. It's like, okay, we know either way. Yeah. Um, I think we see that a lot in these, in like, not necessarily cold cases. We've seen a lot in cold cases because what we do, but just in cases in general, they hone in on one thing or person and don't really investigate anything else or anyone else. Yeah, to solve the case. I'm not saying that they are or were wrong. I'm just saying it's fairly common and I feel that we see it a lot. They get a conclusion and then they go work backwards. Yeah, they're exactly. connecting dots exactly. to, and to get from point A to point B instead of... 100%. I think this one is really severe about this. Yes. It really oh, for is. Sure. And it's so strange because it's just a little kid. It's so weird to me. I wouldn't say just a little kid. I mean, to me, that's almost a grown man. Remember, I mean, he's a child. Remember but, your thought process when you were 17, Alicia. Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. A There's little no, fucking kid. Yeah, but it's like, when I think of a little kid, I think of like seven. I, I think 17. a 20-year-old's a little fucking oh, kid. Oh, they're children, for yeah. sure, mentally. But they're like people. They're mm. like big people. <laughs> I'm like, mm. Well, when you think of it, it's like, I mean, I think 16's too young to drive a car. Oh, God, yeah, when Briley started driving. Oh, my God. Like, I'm thinking about myself when I was 16 driving a car. That was not a good idea but I've never been in a car accident but like you know I had I could make decisions mm-hmm. more mature it's, it's that weird halfway point between well, yeah, child, and I think, childhood and adulthood and it's awful yeah I think your anxiety probably helped you a lot make better decisions when you were younger too because you've oh, always yeah. had anxiety really bad oh for sure so that makes a big Terrified difference everything. when you have the confidence that a 17 year old boy who drives a Ford Mustang and has you know this w- probably fairly wealthy well known in the community he's probably really popular at school yeah he can do whatever that he wants goes yeah it, it clouds your judgment and he's making adult decisions mm-hmm. so you agree so you agree he's more of an adult than a child no because he's dumb because <laughs> he's 17 I, uh, and that's a child i look at it this way well, once again i want to make sure that you that you understand that I have, I I, I know this case. Yeah. I've actually yes. listened to this case, so I'm trying to be very careful mm-hmm. about what I say. I don't understand the process of it because he had a good life. It wasn't he didn't live in a shithole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know he he had good parents. Yeah, he they were in a good community. I don't understand that thought process of zeroing in on him. Right. It's not like he was like 
down and out and yeah yeah Yeah. and like he had options too he was already graduated he could have moved to florida with their grandparents he could have lived in i think they had family like in kentucky he could have started college early i mean he had he chose to stay home yes he stayed there well and i don't mean to play devil's advocate when i say this but there's a lot of situations where people are in the best situations that they could possibly be in and they're just not all there and well, they get true, yeah. you know rage kicks in and yep. they're making huge decisions and being a teenager where your emotions and your hormones yeah, are all over the place already all fucked up in the brain yes exactly so yes and no i yeah. I, I i know this case and mm-hmm. it's all you can there's say it's so much more to it yeah <laughs> there's and you so can much say more it's to it all yeah. situational but your situation can be like you said anything and it's all about what's going on up here mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter She's what's going on head, around by you the way. what's she that is pointing to her <laughs> oh head, yeah. yeah up here yeah and you know you can flip it back around too um let's go back to the point that he's grounded not allowed to go to pre-prom or post-prom or the amusement park and he's he, pissed and he's pissed because he wants to spend time with his girlfriend. Exactly. And we all know what boys are thinking about at 17 mm-hmm. years old. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, once again, there's your devil's advocate as far as that goes. But the situation. It's to, too obvious. Well, <laughs> like, I, I know that sounds stupid, yeah. but it's too obvious. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you get to this. I'm going to get to a fuck ton. Okay. <laughs> there's going to be a so fuck ton. There's so much. There's so much that I want to say. So, that yeah, I, no, yeah, you yeah, got to be patient. I got to be patient. They began to surveil Jeff. They watched him at the service for his family, noting that he was not emotional. I mean, they took a bunch of pictures. We'll post one of the pictures. It's like the infamous picture of him looking very, like, devious while he's hugging, being comforted by people. And I'm like, okay, you can take a picture of anybody and you can look like a shitty person. Yeah. Well, and like I stated in the Brandy Peltz case basing somebody's entire exactly. character yeah. off of one situation i hate being at funerals i hate being mm-hmm. at any, yeah me too any kind of viewing. i will avoid it at all costs same or and while i'm there i like shut down maybe that's his whole fucking family's dead except his two sisters mm-hmm. and his grandparents like both of his, all three of his parents you know two of his younger sisters are dead who's gonna be normal after that yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, his mom died when he was probably, what, like thir- 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And then his dad remarries this other woman. I mean, you're going to you're gonna be angry. And their whole lives were uprooted. Mm-hmm. That's something I don't think that you talked about, that they lived in Florida. Oh, yeah. They I lived in Florida first. They moved, here. they moved here. Like, it was oh, already... And what a terrible thing for a 13-year-old, too. Yeah, being to a leave Florida? To leave Florida and come yeah. to fucking Indiana. <laughs> oh, man. Um, did this is something I don't know? Did was there ever any pictures of the two sisters, the two surviving sisters? Yeah, did there's they, a ton of pictures of them uh, actually, at the funeral. I mean, oh. what were their grieving? What was their grieving process in that? I mean, oh right, well, it didn't matter. On, they didn't take any fucking pictures of them. They were just taking pictures of Jeff. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. you know, they're going through the exact same thing. Why would you not kind of hone in on that to see what their grieving process is too? Maybe why are they not suspects? Like I, I'm they, not trying to be a jerk about it. Well, but, they had a solid alibi, backed up by adults, basically. Still. And they were yeah. younger than I'm him. Sure they were they 13 looked, and like 10. If they looked hard enough, they could have an alibi for Yeah, yeah. Jeff, I mean, you're right, yeah. Chosen not to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it comes down, which I'm going to talk about this. We're going to have like just an episode of us discussing <laughs> all sure. this shit. But like, 
I'm going to talk about this way later, but I'm pretty sure the whole time frame for them pinning this on him is like barely 20 minutes. It's, yeah, I don't it's think like it was barely that, yeah. 20 minutes for him to do. It, like, yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, we'll exactly. get into it soon. <clears throat> uh, remember all the evidence I had mentioned earlier? The locket and the keys seemed like pretty like important, pretty yeah. substantial. Uh, it's not seemingly to the cops. Apparently, those items weren't even pictured as evidence, and they focused more on the evidence that they found in the laundry room and the bathroom. These are um, items that the police that started the police on kind of the like manhunt or the witch hunt mm-hmm. for that's a better word for it on Jeff because I think they said they found I might I might mention this later but they are claiming that they found pants in the washer and they tested the washer for luminol it lit up but they I'm not sure how, how much time passed but it was like the water had iron in it and then also at that time the detergent had phosphates in it which is going to give you false positives mm-hmm. so they I mean it didn't matter why would you even test that yeah Knowing that. This is 1989, right? Yeah. This is like the infancy of... Yeah, they're like, oh my gosh, so much blood all over this washing machine. Yeah. yeah, they didn't... In the original search of the home, in the bathroom, they found those wet towels I'd mentioned earlier. They also noted that the bathtub was wet, indicating that someone had recently cleaned themselves or cleaned something. They were also claiming that they found Jeff's jeans in the washing machine... But it was not in the video that they took, nor was it documented who took them from the home or when they were taken. He had told police the last thing he was wearing when he left his home to get ready for prom. I say the last thing because he had worked at McDonald's that morning and then hung out at home for a while, so he had changed his clothes a couple of times. He told police that he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt with blue jeans, and they also checked him for bruising, like, on his front shoulder for the butt of the gun from, like, firing. Mm-hmm. And he had no bruising from that. Dahlia in the podcast described him as shrimpy. So one would think that if he f- fired five shotgun rounds. Deer slugs. Yes. Yeah, from he a would have some bruising. I mean, just seems common like, sense. Yeah, yeah. It seems reasonable. I think so, too. And that's, again, that would be actual physical evidence. Yeah. It's just not there. Let's see. We're going to hop into a little time machine. Beep, boop, beep, boop, 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 beep, boop. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) We're going to fast forward to 13 years after the murders. Um, August of 2002. Jeff Pelly, now 30 years old, living in Florida, is arrested at a Los Angeles airport for the 1989 killings of Robert, Don, Janelle, and Jolene. Seemingly out of nowhere, but it wasn't out of nowhere, um, what changed was a new prosecutor named Chris Toth had taken over. And we're going to go back to 1989. <laughs> That's time travel. That's what it sounds like. So early on, police had learned that Jeff really struggled with the death of his mother. I believe her name was Joyce. I probably shouldn't have said that. It's probably not her name. Joyce. That's probably not her. Joyce. So after Dawn and Robert got married, there was obvious tension in the home. You know, he was 13, 12, you know, between 12 and 14, we'll say. Preteen. Yes. Ish. Early teen. Oh, yeah. 12 is a preteen. You're right. And apparently Robert told Jeff that he needed to call Don mother. 
You can't tell that to someone that old. He's too far along. Well, you shouldn't tell any child to. Well, I 100% agree with you, but it's different when you tell a two year old, this is your mom, Mm -hmm. as opposed to telling a 13 year old. Basically, police say Jeff planned all of this out so he could go to prom and go to all of the activities included with prom. They also mentioned that Jeff had been involved, like we had spoken earlier, in the robbery of his friend's house, but no charges were ever filed. He had, in the cop's eyes, he had the motive, he had the criminal history, he had access to that shotgun. They believe. Yes, exactly. That's what I said, in the cop's head. The, they, and um, the lack of emotion, along with their circumstantial evidence and interviews, absolutely nothing had changed in that 13 years. They just took that plunge with that prosecutor and just arrested him on kind of the same, the same mindset. That's wild. Yeah. Jeff maintained his innocence during the trial that was not held until 2006. He said through tears, I loved my family dearly and I have lived my life trying to pattern my life after my father. And he also said, I would not, could not, and I did not do this. Despite there being no physical evidence, Jeff was found guilty July 21st, 2006 by a jury of his peers and sentenced to four 40-year sentences to be served consecutively. And I think that's where I'm going to cut it off today. It sounds like it sounds like the end of the story, right? He got convicted. They solved the crime. But we've all been watching the news, right? We have. We mm-hmm. know what's going on. There's been some crazy developments and some weird happenings in this case. And so I decided to do a two-part episode story. <laughs> a two-part story. Um, this is our first two-parter. Yeah, it is. Uh, hey. I think, what was it? The I-70 Strangler probably could have been a two-parter, <laughs> I think. So in part two, I will discuss the trial and the newer developments in the case. I wanted to lay down the base here, like how the original case played out. Kind of, I know it was a little bit vague, but I think we'll get into a little bit of the juicier stuff in part oh, yeah. two. So, it gets wild. Yeah. Alicia will have a case between this episode and part two, so it is a two-week wait, but we're all patient. We can hang on, <laughs> right? We can wait. You're killing me. <laughs> Jeremy has so I much know. to say. I know. He wants to say so, so many things because he, yeah, he's very familiar with this case. This is my rabbit hole case, people. You know what? I think it's turning into mine, too. <laughs> also, I want to give one more shout out to Dahlia D'Ambra of Counterclock. Definitely not doing her justice. She does a wonderful and not to mention thorough job researching and organizing this story. So I recommend if you want to go on like a deep dive into like the rabbit hole like we we're talking about of this case. I recommend you take a listen to that. But maybe listen to mine first because <laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah. Listen to mine first because mine's like kind of an overview and then you can get into the way Perfect. deeper stuff. Um, I also have kind of a funny side note, and we can cut this if you guys don't think it's funny. I thought it was really funny when I was reading it. So I was researching in the Rushville Republican, and I was researching, uh, like, searching Pelly. Mm-hmm. And I saw an article titled, Police Arrest Grandmother. I had to click on it, obviously. Um, they basically came up because the grandmother's last name was Pelly. Mm-hmm. She was trying to hire a hitman to kill her former son-in-law for $2,500. 
But the person that she met with and tried to hire ended up being an undercover officer. Catch I know. Every time. I know. <laughs> but aside from the odd and funny situation of like an old lady trying to hire a hitman, you know how much I love and appreciate alliteration. Yes. The article stated she wanted to kill Mark Murphit of Martinsville. <laughs> and I just had to say, this, that's pretty good. Right? It sounds like a, fi- a fictional character. It sounds like a Muppet name. Muppet Mark Murphit of Martinsville. <laughs> it's magical. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's kind of where we're going to stop today. And I'm going to hand it off to our more professional um, host here. And she's going to let you guys know all of the stuffs and things. And things. And stuffs things. and things. So we want to know your opinion on this case. Just this first part. If you yeah. know this case, don't leave any comments giving away anything because that's not fair to people. That yeah, you can wait it. till after the second part, and then you can be like, you f- did. You should have talked about this. Yes, I'll take that. But let me get my second part out first. To view information and case files about this story and other stories that we've covered, feel free to check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And while you're there. Give us a quick follow. We are available anywhere that you enjoy listening to podcasts. So make sure to share anything that you see on uh, social media. I know I sound like a broken record, but please go ahead and give us a follow on Spotify and Apple. And if you are a spotter, Spotify, Spotify, I'm Spotify, a, fly. <laughs> a Spotify or Apple podcast listener, uh, you can rate and review. And this helps immensely when it comes to getting ads for us and upping our ratings in the charts. It's really quick and easy, and it's a free way to help support this podcast. Um, And then feel free to search for our partners, Golden Image Podcasts. They put out a bi-monthly podcast or show each month. And just give them a listen. They do have social media, so you can be sure to follow them for more information on upcoming episodes. All righty, guys. Until next Next week. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.